The revolutionaries who had spent the winter at Valley Forge had been through almost every imaginable trial. They had seen their comrades killed at New York, in New Jersey, and had lost the national capital at Philadelphia. They arrived at Valley Forge as 12,000 soldiers, and disease and cold had killed nearly 2,000 of them by May and nearly 3,000 soldiers had been listed as unfit for duty because they could not clothe themselves. As George Washington stepped out of his headquarters at the house rented to him by Mrs. Deborah Hughes and into the crisp spring air, he knew that the time to resume the war was coming quickly. He wondered if his soldiers were prepared to re-enter the field of battle, and he was unsure if Baron von Steuben's training, which had given them skills and tactics, would translate into courage and fidelity. Would they stand and fight, or would Washington find himself at the head of a dispirited army, running and walking and crawling away? And so, in this, one of his darkest hours in the war, Washington set out to find his wife Martha and go see a play, Joseph Addison's Cato, A Tragedy. This is 1000 Words, written and produced by Michael DeWatley, a podcast about the world that art has made. The American colonies had not been a fertile place for theater to grow. Puritans across New England believed theater was immoral, a waste of resources, and irreligious. They legislated accordingly. Quakers and Presbyterians had passed laws banning theater for moral and economic reasons when the city of Philadelphia was founded. Plays were enjoyed more freely by Anglicans and Baptists in the South, though that may have had as much to do with the free time afforded to slaveholders as it did with them having a more liberal mindset on the production of plays. The First Continental Congress had only existed for one month when it instituted a ban on theatrical performances, as well as cockfighting and gaming in order to avoid any semblance of extravagance, a ban that Washington would defy with the Valley Forge production put on by his officers. Because this was Cato, and America loved Cato. This play that featured a stoic, principled, solitary general of the Roman Republic standing firm against the encroaching grasp of a tyrannical Caesar had been entertaining the colonies since 1732, with productions so numerous and frequent that it became part of the American mythos. When Patrick Henry cried out, Give me liberty or give me death, he was quoting from Cato, Act 2, Scene 4. Nathan Hale's final act of rebellion, stating, My only regret is that I have but one life to give for my country, he was cribbing from Act 4, Scene 4. Portions of Addison's play appeared in Ben Franklin's diary, John Adams' love letters, and all manner of correspondence from George Washington. Maybe George Washington loved the play more than anyone else. 
When a 26-year-old Washington was sending outrageously flirtatious messages from the front of the French and Indian War to an already married woman, naughty boy, he quoted Cato and expressed his desire to be in the play with her rather than fighting a war. When he praised Benedict Arnold, before the whole treason thing, for deserving good fortune, he was quoting Cato. When he spoke to mutinous officers in 1783, he paraphrased Cato, and when he wrote to Alexander Hamilton about his intention to retire from the presidency, he happily utilized Cato for the occasion. While George Washington prepared to see Cato at Valley Forge, the British had not only captured the American capital at Philadelphia, but occupied it like conquering heroes, while the Americans dwelt cold, starving, and filthy in the edges of a Pennsylvanian forest. The British put on a meschienza, which is Italian for a smorgasbord of outrageously elaborate festivities that included concerts, a boat parade, fireworks, dancing, and a costumed joust with army officers playing the roles of Knights of the Blended Rose and Burning Mountain as they celebrated the departure of General William Howe from North America. The whole to-do cost over 3,000 guineas, or hundreds of thousands of dollars in today's currency. Conversely, details about the production at Valley Forge are scarce. The American Army had no Arts in the Armed Forces program or USO performers sent out to entertain the troops. There were no microphones, fog machines, or pyrotechnics. In a fighting force that lacked clothes, it's hard to imagine the performers wearing much in the way of costumes, though maybe sheets pinned up to look like togas would be convincing enough. The play itself was performed in The Bakehouse, a bakery-turned-theater, on the stone floor or perhaps on a stage that probably looked and felt a little too temporary. But we do know that the house was packed, and the performers were soldiers, who had seen and been through so much. And so as they began to recite the blank verse of the play, it's easy to imagine that they were trying to, to quote Cato, to animate the soldiers' drooping courage with love of freedom and contempt of life, will thunder in their ears their country's cause. Act 1, Scene 2. Contempt of life, because what's more striking than imagining George Washington taking in a play at that particular moment in history is the fact that the play chosen ended in despair and suicide. Cato is based on the final days of Marcus Porcius Cato, who is the last standing general resisting Julius Caesar's takeover of the Roman Republic. With Cato cornered in Utica, he and his friends are tempted and tested to compromise and collaborate with Caesar to see his dictatorship as Rome's best opportunity for a brighter future. Cato's troops are exhausted and semi-mutinous, he's unsure of which allies will stay the course, and he doesn't know the best way to continue fighting. 
Ultimately, as he is betrayed and defeated, Cato exerts one final act of independence by stabbing himself in the stomach offstage and slowly bleeding out over the course of the final act. The play chosen to rouse the troops reminded them of the cost of failure as well as the moral imperative to continue fighting. Cato was also surely a message to the British camped a day's march away that their mesquienza was cute, but Americans were preparing to fight until the British left or every American soldier died. And somehow, Cato seems to have worked. On May 14, 1778, Colonel William Bradford Jr. wrote to his sister about the performance, saying, If the enemy does not retire from Philadelphia soon, our theatrical amusements will continue. I hope, however, we shall be disappointed in all these by the more agreeable entertainment of taking possession of Philadelphia. Cato and Valley Forge were transformative, and the army that marched out of the camp was hardened, determined, and focused on establishing their new nation. They developed concepts of basic training and the Army Corps of Engineers. Six weeks after the performance following the Battle of Monmouth, American General Anthony Wayne happily reported that the Knights of the Blended Rose and Burning Mount have resigned their laurels. Cato was the perfect play for that moment in American history, and it lost popularity quickly after the end of the war, which makes sense. Americans didn't need to hear stories of how to die a virtuous death when they were trying to build a virtuous country. But the Valley Forge production is a reminder that America was not born from a place of compromise. Cato, Washington and their armies were consumed in an all-or-nothing violent quest against superior forces. Their fierceness and resolve were perhaps their greatest strengths. Give me liberty or give me death. Not a lot of gray in there. Not a lot of room for different perspectives or collaboration or pluralistic community. And maybe that's why the play is a tragedy. Cato was stoic and brave and honorable, and Cato killed himself. Washington needed Cato to pull himself out of Valley Forge. Washington did not need Cato to be president. This has been 1000 Words. If you like what you heard, please do me a favor and like, subscribe, and review this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Believe me, it does a tremendous amount of good for the show. This podcast comes to you from the weird and wonderful city of Austin, Texas. Music from this podcast came from purpleplanet.com. Thanks for listening.